Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live.
you are holy. You are the king, king of kings, Lord of lords, worthy to be worshipped. We praise your holy name. Thank you, Father, for leading us where you have, bringing us together that we may learn together and grow together into one spirit, one mind, and one accord, worshiping you, honoring you, treating you as king, because you are the only true God, the only Savior, the one and only above all things. We gather here not only to be taught, but also to worship. And not only out of commandment, but also out of need and also out of desire to feel your presence, to hear your voice, to come into more unity with you, to be more pleasing to you, to walk in your light, all these things and more are many multitude reasons why we desire to come together at the same time with our brothers and sisters to serve and to worship you and hear your holy words. Father, we ask that you would help me to deliver the truth of the Holy Scriptures today so that we'll continue to learn and grow in the truth and become more acceptable to you, Father. And not only more acceptable, but more pleasing in your eyes to come totally into the center of your will and totally out of our will and totally into what your will is, Father. We pray, Lord, your will be done in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. You may be seated. We're going to start today in the book of John, John chapter 2. And I've pretty much preached this before, but today I really feel led to preach it again, as well as to uh, include a little bit more teaching that I've not quite covered before. Anytime that we're going over the scriptures, we're going to read the same scriptures over and over and over again and repeat a lot of the same points. But at the same time, we always can increase the understanding of the same scriptures perhaps start reading a little bit earlier in the chapter or read a little bit later in the chapter to get a little bit more of the background, a little bit more understanding than what we may have a previous time that we read it. And maybe maybe looking at other scriptures that we've not covered as often as well. Combine all these things together, here a little and there a little. So today's date is January the 13th, 2018 A.D., in the year of our Savior Jesus Christ, 
And in God's calendar, it is the 26th day of the 10th month. 26th day of the 10th month. And today's title is Bold Truth Threatens Comfort Zone. Bold Truth Threatens Comfort Zone. As I've said many times over the years, the typical typical false impression that most people have of Jesus is that he never said a word that offended anyone. That is what most Christians believe. Most people who call themselves Christians, most people who think that they are saved, the average person on the street the average person in the Bible Belt and outside of the Bible Belt, they think of Jesus as being a man who never offended anybody for any reason. He never condemned anyone, they think. He never said anything negative about anybody, they think. He he didn't do any name-calling, they think. And he never attacked anyone they think, and especially that he, he never attacked anyone who actually believed in him or ever said anything negative about anybody that would say anything, uh, that he never said anything negative about Christians, about religion, about religious people, about preachers, about the churches. They think he never said anything about other churches. A lot of people are under the impression that as Christians and as preachers and pastors that we should never say anything negative about the church next door or the church down the street or any other church or pastor or Christian as long as, hey, they believe too that we shouldn't speak nothing about them. So here in John chapter 2, we know this verse starting in verse 13, John 2 verse 13. The Passover the Jews were near and Jesus went up to the temple. And a lot of people will read that one verse by itself and think that the Passover is for the Jews only. But that's impossible. In, can maybe, Michael, do you know any, any, there's multiple reasons why that's impossible. Can you think of even just one? That it would be for the Jews only. Not because that, that's a holy day for all nations. It's a holy day for all nations, right. You just have to be there. With, that's why they play. Amen. It's, it's, no words in the Bible doesn't say that the Passover was for the Jews only. No words. In fact, Jews are only one of the twelve tribes of Israel. So when he when you look at the very first what we know as the first Passover night, the night before they left Egypt, 
it wasn't just the Jews that had been in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. It was all 12 tribes. So you had the tribe of Manasseh, which were not Jews, the tribe of Ephraim, which are not Jews, the tribe of Reuben, which are not Jews, the tribe of Dan, which are not Jews, and all the other tribes. So it was never, ever for the Jews only, ever. So when it says Passover of the Jews here, it's only because that was the location, like Michael said. That was the location he was at. If he had been in Russia, it would be the Passover of the Russians or the Passover of the Americans or whatever location he was at. Amen. And he went up to Jerusalem. You go down to verse 14. Actually, you go past all my footnotes. Verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and also the money changers seated at their tables. Now, this would have been bad in any time of year. This was a holy day. This is blasphemy. Amen. I mean, even on the seventh day or any day of the week, this would have been bad. People there in the house of God, in the temple of God, not to worship, not to hear the word of God, but to make money in the house of God. That is such total disrespect and dishonor for God. Amen. And, of course, that would anger Jesus. Of course, that would anger our Father, and it should have angered the priests. Any of the priests, not even just the high priest, but any of the priests, they should... Where was the leaders? Where were the men of God? Where was the men of God? Even, even if you look past the high priests and the minor priests, what about just the typical, the average church member even? What about that man? How comes nobody from the top to the middle to the, to the basic member of the church. Nobody said anything or did anything to throw these people out, even though they were so dishonorable to God. Nobody lifted a finger or a voice. In, in holiness to God, Amen. But Jesus did. And here in verse 15, he made a scourge of cords, meaning he made a whip, and drove them all out of the temple. And with the sheep and the ox, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their table. He flew flipping mad. Amen. He totally lost his 
temper. Amen. And verse 16, and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away and stop the making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal or passion for your house will consume me, quoting Psalm 69, verse 9. It was a prophecy that Jesus would lose his temper out of passion, zeal for the house of God. It was prophesied by those words. Amen. This same temper of God really should be in each and every one of us. We are called Christians because we are to model him, be like him, and follow him, and because he lives inside us. That same temper should be in us, and we should be of the same attitude that if you blasted me, God, and have that kind of total dishonor and disrespect to my father and his house, you got to watch out. Amen? I know if somebody comes in my house and disrespects me or comes to my mom's house or my grandmother's house or even my friend's house, if I'm at a friend's house and I'm there hanging out with them and somebody comes in and disrespects my friend in front of me, They better take care of that because if they don't, I will. Amen? Don't disrespect my friend or my father or my parents in front of me. Amen? The people today are afraid to do anything. People especially in Western, modern society, they're afraid to lift their voice in defense of God. They're afraid to make a motion or a commotion, you know, a scene. Afraid to make a scene. What if somebody is offended? If I stand up, and stand my ground, defend the Father, defend the truth. What if somebody sees me? What if somebody hears me? What if it offends someone? People are more concerned these days with whether or not they offend someone. But they're not so concerned about is somebody offending God? Amen.
Jesus was not the wind that people make him out to be. Amen. He was bold, courageous, and had a temper. And he said it the way it is. Let's look at a few examples where he wasn't using his physical muscles as much, but rather using very bold speech. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, where he was using extremely bold speech against the people. Matthew 6. Verse 2, these are the words of Jesus, Matthew 6, verse 2. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, in the churches, and in the streets, so that they may be honored by mankind. Here, he is talking about other people. He's talking about people. And he's, he's, he's saying, don't be as the hypocrites do in the church. But yet, almost every person that you talk to would say it would be wrong for us to say anything negative or to call names or to call somebody a hypocrite or to call the other church down the street hypocrites. But yet Jesus did. Amen. Jesus did. Talking about people that did believe in God. They believed in the seventh day. They believed in the holy days. We know that because they were, he's talking about people that went to the synagogue. If you went to the synagogue, you believed in the holy days. You believed in the seventh day, and you believed in God, and you believed in one God, not three. If you enter the synagogues, you believed a whole lot of truth. You may have had some false doctrines that had been picked up by the Jews from Babylon and Assyria, but you also had a ton of correct doctrine. And yet he still called them hypocrites. Amen. Because of their actions of pride, that because that these religious people who were going to church on the seventh day and holy days, they were sounding a trumpet before them. They were trying to let it be known on purpose about their good works out of pride. So yeah, it was a true accusation. Jesus was telling the truth. Amen. So, of course, it would be wrong to call names or bring accusations against people if it was not true. Of course, that would be wrong. But he was telling the truth. Amen. He was telling the truth. And somebody had to say it. And how were the people going to be taught correctly unless he did? Amen. 
how were the people going to learn the correct way of acting if if somebody wasn't going to stand up and be a bold preacher of the truth? Amen. Somebody had to say it. Somebody had to teach the people the correct manner of living. Verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. So on. So again, he repeated the word hypocrites, name calling. Verse 16 on the next page. I'd like for you to start underlining each time you see that word hypocrite. In verse 2 and 5, underlining the word hypocrite. And then verse 16. Then look at chapter 15. Verse 7. Now previously, he was calling people hypocrites behind their back. He was. But now he says it to their face. You hypocrites directly, eye-to-eye, face-to-face, you hypocrites. Name calm. Bold. Brave. And straightforward. Amen. Look at chapter 22, verse 18. 22, 18. Twenty-two, eighteen. of Jesus received their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrite? Underline that. Repeat it. Look at chapter 23, verse 13. Chapter 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Over and over and over. Now these Pharisees, and scribes, they were the religious leaders. They were preachers. They were teachers. They were people in power and in authority, which normally you were supposed to honor and respect. Amen? Supposed to honor and respect people in authority, the elders. But he's calling them hypocrites. Amen. Verse 14 is only found in the King James, so let's get verse 14. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Underline hypocrites in verse 15. Go down to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Underline hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Underline that. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Underline that. Verse 19, I mean, verse 29, woe to you, scribes, and Pharisees, hypocrites. Underline that. Over 
and over and over. Jesus wasn't afraid to offend someone. He said it the way it is. Amen. Now, but here is what most people would say to this. But we are not Jesus. So we're not Jesus. We don't have the right to do this. He's God. He's the judge. We're not supposed to judge people. We're not supposed to condemn people is what they say. They say that we should not offend. That we should not name call to them that we are to be more loving than God. That we are to be more patient, more long-suffering, more kind, and more tender, and more patient than what Jesus was. That is what they're saying. Now, of course, they would never say it exactly like that. You'll never hear a false preacher say that we're supposed to be more patient than Jesus. But that's exactly what they teach, though, just with different words. They don't say it straight out. Amen. They're more clever than that. They're not going to admit what they're really teaching. But when they say that we are to be kind and patient and gentle and not ever lose our temper, not ever rebuke, not ever disfellowship, then what are they saying? They are saying that we should always continue and continue and continue endlessly to just get along, not offend, not condemn, not judge, not cast out, not disfellowship. They are saying that we are to be more patient than God himself. That is the heart of the matter. They think we're not supposed to be like God, but better than God. If you really think about it, that is what they are teaching. The fact is, if God can and does lose patience with people, does God expect us to not lose patience? Now, of course, he doesn't want us to lose patience. He doesn't want to lose patience himself. But the fact that he does lose lose patience with people shows that we, too, are not more perfect than he is. We're not. And that we, too, can and even should lose patience with people on Sometimes, just as God does 
we should try to be patient and long-suffering, kind, gentle, and tender. But there is a time to lose patience. There is a time to say no more of this crap. There's a time for that, to say enough is enough. You're not listening to me. You're not willing to examine yourself. You're not willing to examine the truth. You don't want the truth. There's time to say this straight to a person's face. Sometimes they need to hear those words because nobody else will tell them that. Nobody else will tell them that. They need to hear it from somebody. In fact, that is true love. To have a friend that you're close enough to or that you peer enough about to tell them the truth. There's there's true friendship and there's a fake friendship. A fake friendship or maybe even a true friendship that's not yet matured enough yet. There's the fake or a weak or a beginning friendship between people where you don't yet have the, the level of intimacy, the level of love, the level of understanding, the level of mutual respect, so you don't yet have the freedom or the ability or the love to tell somebody the truth. But once you do get to that level of a deep, intimate, and true friendship, you eventually come to the point to where you can tell a friend, that dress is but ugly. You need to throw that dress away. Right? You need to throw that shirt away. Right? Or your breath stinks. Or you need to take a shower. Or whatever the situation may be, it may be offensive. But it is the truth, and they need to hear it. Amen. And they're only going to hear it from somebody that cares enough about them to tell them the truth. Amen. If we say that we love people, we should be willing and bold enough and brave enough to tell them the truth. Amen. To save them, to to lead them to salvation. Amen. Sometimes people need to be told they are hypocrites. Nobody wants to hear that. But there are people that need to hear that. People who are not willing to examine themselves. They're not going to examine themselves. 
That's not the first word that should come out of your mouth. You're a hypocrite. At first, you should try to lead them to help them understand that, to come to that conclusion on their own. There's a right way and a wrong way to go about it. But if it doesn't work by trying to lead them into that conclusion on their own, then sometimes you have to just say it straight out. We first try the approach of being patient. That comes first. Amen. But once you see that all the patience in the world is not going to get it, then it's time to go to the next level. Amen. Years ago, when I was young in this ministry, I wasn't as bold in my preaching. I wasn't as strong in my language. I have gotten more bold and much stronger in my use of words as each and every year goes by. Many people listen to these services one time and they say, this guy hates people. And he is bitter and unforgiving and hateful. And he just is not, he is not a preacher of love. He is not gentle. He is not loving. He does not have the Holy Ghost. He is of the devil. A lot of people make all of those conclusions by listening for five minutes or ten minutes or thirty minutes or one entire sermon. And some people have made these all these same conclusions even after they have listened to multitude of sermons and then eventually come to that conclusion. And the reason they come to these conclusions is I do not understand the seriousness of the situation in the world and in the church itself. They don't understand that there are people that need to hear it the way it is. There are plenty of preachers that you could tune into on Saturday and Sunday that will give you the message that we must keep the commandments of God. The Holy Days, the Seventh Day. And they would do so in a more mild manner, more gentle, more kind, less harsh, and less strong words. They won't call people stupid. Amen. The people would be enticed to listen to those preachers instead, amen. And there are there's a time and a place for all of that. But what happens 
when you've got people who are stuck and not going anywhere in their relationship with God. They, they know about the seventh day. They know about the holy days. But they still have pride, vanity, or this or that, or this or that, or pornography, or a multitude, or say they're still keeping their birthday, or something else. There, there's many possibilities of, of things that people can be stuck in and going nowhere. They're not maturing in Christ Jesus. And they're, they're not forsaking their family, and they never will. And they're not going to forsake any of their friends. And they're not going to make any commotion. They're not going to ruffle any feathers. Amen. They're not going to offend anyone. Because they think that if you love people, you should not offend anyone. That's the way they was raised to believe by the false church or by a family member or friend or of their own assumption. They were raised to believe or made that assumption that you should not ruffle feathers and that you shouldn't lose family or friends just over doctrine or over God. Family comes first or not offending anyone that that comes first. That is not the will of God. To stay stuck in that level of immaturity. To get the people where they need to be, there has to be stronger language. There has to be somebody who will occasionally scream, yell, call names, it has to be done if you're going to get the troops ready for the reality of meeting Jesus in only three and a half, four years, five years, six years or less. The reality of the coming days of great tribulation, the reality of punishment, judgment, the day of the Lord, and meeting God face to face. The reality of standing on judgment day. I hope and I pray that I have not held back from anything of what I needed to do to get you propelled to come to the location and place where you need to be in Christ Jesus. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that we need a Sergeant Carter of the type of guy that was on, uh, what was the name of the show, Gomer Powell. He was in the United States Marines, and Gomer Powell was such a 
uh, flux. He couldn't do anything right. Made a million mistakes. And his sergeant was very, very rough on him. And just yelled at him and screamed at him. Made him do a million push-ups and everything else. But Sergeant Carter shaped him up, got him to where he needed to be to become a great Marine. We are in the army of the Lord in a real war about to go into a war that you cannot yet even begin to imagine what it's going to be like in the time of greatest tribulation. I don't want to send into that time frame immature people who have not been properly trained and exercised for the reality of that time. People have to get right with the Lord. And it's going to take some strong preaching to get people to wake up to their sins and the reality of that. I've known people, still know people, that they have heard tons and tons and tons of preaching and they have read entire Bibles over and over and over again. Tons of preaching, read the entire Bible, knows a lot of truth, but yet these same people are still not saved. They they know about the Holy Day, Christmas, Easter, the Seventh Day. They've read the Bible probably more than I have. But they are not saved. They're not saved. And the reason they are not saved is that is because they still, they still are not willing to confess their own sins. They are totally ignorant of their own darkness. Even though the main person that I'm talking about, I even wrote a letter, more than one letter, two or three letters, spelling it out exactly what their sins are in hopes that their response would be, I confess and I repent. And that the response would be, by salvation of their soul. But instead, the response was, none of this is true. None of it. Nothing, nothing, nothing in his entire letter is true. Incredible. And not only that person alone, but even another person I'm thinking same thing. 
how are you going to get people like this saved? They've read the Bible. They've fasted. They've got the head knowledge. They've got correct doctrine. Sometimes it looks really, really hopeless. It really does. And with people like that, the only thing you can do is get more bold and just say it the way it is. Because if you beat around the bush, if you give only hints, Includes, but we don't say it the way it is, they're not going to catch on to it. Amen. For example, one person I'm thinking about, I was sitting right beside them in church years ago, and the preacher started preaching all about that person. And it was as clear as day to me, clear as day, that the preacher was preaching about that person, about how they acted, about their evil and dark heart, about the way they treat people wrong. And every word, I had no doubt why this preacher was preaching that. The only thing he could have done to make it more clear is to actually say, it's you. It is your name. It, it is you. I'm pointing towards you. It is you I'm talking about. That's the only way it could have been more clear. And you know what? He should have done that. He actually should have done that because the fact that he didn't do that, the person didn't get it. It went right over their head. It's not about me. It's not about me. And I even put it in a letter to that person years after that, saying, don't you remember this sermon? And you laughed at the sermon. You laughed at the sermon thinking it was funny the way that the preacher was talking about this person, but it was you. How do you deal with such a person other than just coming straight out and saying, it is you? I think of another time when God had sent me to a church where I had never been before. It was a Babylonian church, but God was sending me there to preach. They didn't know who I was. They didn't know my doctrines, my teachings, my background. I walked in that place knowing that I needed to preach. And I had to go back two or three times, two or three weeks in a row, before they would finally let me preach. But I kept doing that until they let me preach. And when they let me preach, God took control. 
the Spirit of God moved in me, and I started walking through the crowd, between the different people sitting around the church. And God took me straight up to one young man, and I looked straight in his eyes while I was saying certain words. Then you could see the size of his eyes got two or three times larger, and he looked around about who was seeing that I was speaking to him. And then I caught myself that I needed to walk away, not make it so clear it was about him. And I walked away and passed the preacher had a big smile on his face because he had witnessed God moving through me to speak directly to the person, eye to eye. It is you. You need to do it. Even though I didn't say it with those words, it was eye to eye, and everybody knew Sometimes it should be that way. And sometimes, even by name, and many times over the years in these sermons right here, I have called names of people who were not in the local services, not in the room at the time, but thinking that these people might be listening or might listen again sometime or another in the future, that I have called names. And sure enough, they were listening or did listen. And of course, they got angry. They got extremely angry and went out and ripped their bumper stickers off their cars. And to this day, they hate me with a great passion. They truly hate me. Amen. Now, they agree that probably almost every doctrine and every teaching and ever prophecy I teach almost. But they still hate me. Because how dare I call names? I tell you how dare I call names. Because I love you enough to take you by the shoulder and just shake you and say, Hello! Somebody in there? Are you listening? It's you. You've got to repent. Amen. If if that is the only way that I'm going to get a person to realize that they need to wake up. Amen. Let's go to 
book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4. 2 Timothy, chapter 4. Page 214 in the black and white Alpha and Omega Bible. Timothy 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of Theos and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. This is Paul writing Timothy. And Timothy was younger than Paul. And we believe that Timothy got saved by the preaching of Paul. And Paul established the congregation, the church, where Timothy was leading. And Paul ordained Timothy. So Paul had established the congregation and had come to the conclusion that Timothy was called by God and ordained by God to be a leader and a preacher. And Paul ordained Timothy, laid his hands on Timothy, and said, you are ordained of God. You're going to be the preacher of this congregation. And he left Timothy behind as a preacher of that congregation. And now Paul is writing Timothy and telling him to preach the word, be ready in season or out of season at all times, reprove rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Amen. That wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to miss. Amen. Now that was true in the day of Paul and Timothy, but how much more true it is in our day and in our time when people are accumulating or keeping for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. If they want to believe that it's okay to commit abortion, if they want to believe it's okay to be Muslim or to be homosexual, then they will find them their own teacher, their own church, their own congregation, where they can believe what they want to believe. Or if they want to believe in what saved, always saved, they will find that church. If they want to believe in three gods, they will find that church. Whatever they want to believe in, that is what they look for. Rather than, rather than proving what the truth is. Amen. Rather than 
reading the Bible in a sincere, deep, deep self-examination of their own sins and their own faults and what the truth really is and what is acceptable to God and what's not acceptable to God, what is correct doctrine and what is not correct doctrine, instead of examining themselves and letting the Bible change them, they will go to the church with the teacher that will upseed them, that will scratch their back, shake their hand, and not say anything to offend them. Amen. And how is that going to be good on Judgment Day? How is that going to result in sanctification? How is that going to result in righteousness and in truth? It won't, will it? And Paul knew that the congregation, the people looking for a minister, the people looking for a teacher and a place to go to church, Paul knew that there would be people like this. And what did he tell Timothy? He said, be ready at all times and rebuke. He didn't tell Timothy that when these people come to you who want to hear lies, give them what they want. Paul didn't tell Timothy, give them what they want. Paul didn't tell Timothy, never offend them, be careful, don't offend them. They might leave church. You might push them away. No. He told Timothy, rebuke. Amen. Now, he told Timothy also to have great patience as well. But he also told Timothy, to rebuke also. Amen. If you have a preacher that will never rebuke anybody for anything, then you do not have a preacher. What you have is a motivational teacher or a motivational speaker coming in. You don't have a preacher. You don't have a pastor. You don't have a man of God if he is never going to rebuke sin and darkness and false churches. Amen. But people want a motivational speaker is what they want. Go to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, page 194. Ephesians 5, verse 3, but in morality, 
meaning anything immoral, meaning sin, any sin, or any impurity or greed, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, nor filthiness and silly talking or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. What verse 3 and 4 is talking about is that we should not be using vulgar language and cuss words. In verse 5, for this you know for sure, that no immoral or impure person or a covetous man who is our daughter has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and Theo. Notice here, it's not only about, it doesn't mention the seventh day in this verse. It doesn't mention the holy days or the Ten Commandments in this verse. What it's talking about in this verse is the state of your heart, the state of your mind, immoral, unclean, unpure, uh, impure person. Amen. How can we say that we are, how can we say that we're pure if we're still cussing? We have to get rid of all trash out of our mouth, our heart, and our mind, eventually. And work on it every day, work on it every week, and every month, and every year, continue to work on it to get more and more trash out. We're going to be at the time of Passover soon. And the thing about Passover is you're taking the symbolism of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and it says very clearly that before you do that, that you're supposed to examine yourself. That you're supposed to take time to really, really, really think about what you're going to do about the extreme importance of the Passover that you're taking the holy blood of Jesus Christ. You're not just drinking Mountain Dew. Amen. You're not just drinking Kool-Aid, some junk, toxic chemical drink. No, you're taking the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of God, into your soul. The blood and the body of our Savior, our Redeemer, it's a huge thing. Passover communion should not be taken lightly the way that the false church takes it lightly. but rather we take the weeks before Passover, weeks before Passover and the days and the hours counting down to Passover, thinking about, am I saved? Am I saved? Because if you're not, you're not supposed to take that body and blood of the communion. The Bible is very clear on that. Very clear on that that is only for baptized 
saved members of the church. Very clear. And it doesn't matter that you think you got saved 10 years ago or 10 days ago. You have to re-examine yourself every year because you can lose salvation. You might have been saved by the last time that you took the communion, but maybe this year you actually stopped praying. And if you stop praying, how can you say you're saved? How can you say you know God and you don't talk to him? Don't make no sense to me. Say you know God and you don't talk to him. So we got to make the sure that we become a saint. That we become a pure person. And it says here in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of Theos comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. But for the fruit for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even rebuke them. Amen. So if you're talking about Christmas, Easter, if you're talking about Sunday morning worship services, if you're talking about the Baptist church worship services, if you're talking about the Presbyterian, the Episcopal, the Lutheran, whatever, all these different denominations, where they are going to worship three gods. And they are worshiping the devil is what they're doing. Isn't that the truth? It doesn't matter that they think they're worshiping Jesus. Ain't the truth if they're doing holidays and even the day of the week that is totally connected to Roman Catholic doctrine. These, some of these Baptist churches teach against the Catholic Church. Some of the Baptist Church, the one right here, the closest Baptist Church to this place, teaches strongly against the Catholic Church. And yet, they have a Catholic Church steeple on top of their building. And they go and worship on Sunday, just like the Catholics do, and worship a three-headed monster, just like the Catholics do, and keep Christmas and Easter, just like the Catholics do. How can you say that you're not Catholic? And how can you even preach against the Catholics when you are a Catholic? Hypocrites. Amen. Amen. Hypocrites. 
Am I telling the truth? God is my witness. Amen. God is my witness. If there ever was a hypocrite, it is the Baptist church and the Catholic church and the Pentecostal church. They are all hypocrites. So why do I say this? Is it because I hate them? No. It is because it is the truth. And why not? Why not speak the truth? And if if there's any place on this earth to speak the truth, isn't it during a sermon? Ain't that the best time and the best place and the best location for the truth to be boldly spoken is during a sermon? I know that you can't always say everything exactly the way it is when you're in a grocery, when you're shopping, when you're in a grocery checkout lane and somebody says something. It's not always the right time and the right place to say something. Maybe it is, maybe it ain't. But most of the time, that's not the right time and the right place to say something when you're in a checkout lane or at work. It's not always the right time and the right place. But when you are gathered together on the true seventh day with true brothers and true sisters and you come to hear the truth, what better time to just say it the way it is? And if we have to call names, then so be it. Amen? It says here in verse 11 that do not propitiate in their unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even rebuke them. Verse 12, for it is a disgrace for even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything becomes visible is light. For this reason, he says, awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That means he wants us to wake up and stop being spiritually dead. Stop being spiritually asleep. Stop being spiritually ignorant of what the will of the Lord is. Stop being spiritually ignorant about what our sins are. Wake up and smell the coffee. Wake up and realize what our sins are and what we must do and what we must not do. Stop being spiritually sleep or spiritually dead. The world is spiritually blind, dead, and asleep. Amen? And he wants us to wake up. Amen. And sometimes you need a alarm clock to make you wake up. Sometimes you need a alarm clock spiritually. In the Bible, it's known as a trumpet. 
And the Bible tells us to blow the trumpet loud and to wake up the people. There's a war coming. In fact, we're already there. We're already in a war. But people are asleep. And they're being attacked by lies, fairy tales, deceptions, false doctrine. They're being taught wine names, which are of the devil. And how can you say that you're spiritually awake and your eyes are open when you're blind and deceived and being told that the name of God is YHWH or, or Yahweh or Yahshua or Yahuashua or, or something like that because there's no way possible that any of those names could be right because all of those names are connected to the YHWH and we know for a fact we know for a fact that Satanists and witches admit that they chant the YHWH letters. It's on their, their jewelry that they wear, it's on their necklaces, their rings, the YHWH. And they chant these four sounds. And they have done that throughout time. We know they did that in Assyria. We know they did that in Babylon. We know they still do that. We know that the Freemasons believe in those names. We know that the Catholic Church believes in those names. We know that it is on the walls of the Catholic Church, the YHWH, and the all-CNI and the sun and the moon and all those pagan, demonic, satanic symbols. So how can you say that the witches and the Satanists and the Catholic Church and the Freemasons and the Illuminati and all these evil groups and the Shriners and all these evil groups that that has that has the truth that yet that's what people think. People think that his name is Yahshua, Yahweh, Jehovah, all these that are directly connected, not loosely connected, but directly connected with Satanism and witchcraft. How can we even, even entertain that at all. It's ridiculous. It's, it blows my mind how people can even even think about forsaking the name of Jesus. If you had told me when I was 30 years old that one of these days People everywhere would be forsaking the name of Jesus and saying that his name, Jesus, is not his name. If you had told me that 
even 20 years ago, I would be like, no, that is not going to happen. That is not going to happen. I mean, that that is so mind-blowing. If you had told me that when I was a kid and when I first started learning the truth or when I first started going to church or even after I had been going to church for a long time and and you would have told me that that people everywhere would be forsaking the name Jesus, even thinking about that. But today, people will go to a website that will say, Jesus is not his true name. His true name is Yahshua. And this is a million reasons why. And read it. Why would you read that? The first sentence should be enough to be like, Danger! 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 But instead, people are like, what? Oh, I want to know more. I want to believe this. I want to be brainwashed. I want to be deceived. I hate the name of Jesus. Jesus is horrible. Jesus is Satan. What kind of stupidity? Inserting hatred of God. Jesus got angry because they were selling animals, food, supplies in the house of God. And he got so angry that he overthrew the tables. How much more angry should he get that people would even read a stupid website that says that the name of Jesus is not true. If you had told me this when I was a kid, I would laugh at you and say, you're crazy. That is not going to happen. But now it happens every minute somebody going to a website. Every minute somebody is reading that Jesus' name is not real, and they accept it, and they believe it. And after that, there is nothing that you can say, nothing that you can write, nothing that you can preach, nothing that you can give them or show them or anything to pull them away from that because once they are hooked on that, it is over, baby. It is over. They are lost forever. Because that right there is the most blasphemous, evil, insane stupidity that you can get.
I hope God totally destroys this nation and the Internet. I hope and I pray that every one of these wine-named Hebrew Roots websites and the people who made those websites, I hope they die. I don't hate them, but I hate the devil that's in them. Amen? I hate the devil that are in these websites. The devil himself is the webmaster of those websites, every one of them, without exception. Every wine name church, every wine name preacher, every wine name congregation, every wine name book, every wine name website is run, owned, and operated by no one except Satan himself. And anybody that is sitting at their computer writing the words of Satan, that person deserves to die in the great tribulation. And they will die in the great tribulation. Amen. So why should we even go to their websites to learn truth? That's just like going to a Satanist and say, please teach me the truth. How stupid can people get? If you want truth, do not go to a satanic website that says that Jesus' name is not real. And once we come to accept that his name is Jesus, why give the devil a fourth of an inch of doubting what we have already accepted? Once God shows us his name, his truth, his glory, his lordship, why should we allow the devil to creep into our mind, creep into our heart, and cause us to doubt his name? If you go to a satanic website enough, they will lead you astray. It's not a maybe about it. You go to a satanic website and you keep going to those satanic websites thinking that you'll just get whatever's good and leave the rest alone. Well, guess what? If there is some rat turds in the cereal, you've got to throw out the whole box. Amen? If there are some rat turds inside the cereal box, throw out the whole box. Amen? Don't eat around it. Things are so serious that I have to scream to get across my point. 
to help people realize how serious this is. This ain't playing games. This is serious stuff. This is life and death. Amen. Look at John chapter 3. Verse 17, page Theos did not send the Son into the world to judge the world or condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, one stage he's going to come and he's going to judge the world. But he came as a baby, as the Lamb of God, to die for our sins, to save us. He's not out to get us. William came in here couple weeks ago, a week ago, whenever it was that William was with us. And on that last night that he was here, when he came back in, he said, basically, look over me, whatever, hope I didn't see any whatever. He said, but when something is out to kill me, I tend to make fun of it. He was talking about, you know, God out to get him. That's the attitude that people have. They're like, God is out to kill us. God is out to destroy us. How can you say that a loving God is going to send us to the lake of fire? That's their attitude. God didn't come uh, to condemn us. He came to save us. And he's not out to get us. And he doesn't want to throw anybody in the lake of fire. That's the last thing he wants. He doesn't want anybody to be tortured or to die. He wants the best for us. We're his children. He created us not to make us miserable and or to kill us, but he actually loves us. But if we live our entire life, and even in the second resurrection, all the way up to the judgment day, that we still remain in our stability. If we still remain in our darkness, our wickedness, if we still remain in such a condition to where we think that he is evil and that he is out to get us, and we think that the name of Jesus is evil and that the Bible is wrong, then then we deserve to die. Amen. At the end of two resurrections and at the end of an entire another lifetime and we're still thinking that God is evil, that Jesus is evil, 
and we deserve to die in that lake of fire. And if God doesn't destroy us, then there will not be joy, peace, and paradise for anyone. Amen. If he does not totally destroy every wicked person, then we have no hope of everlasting peace. Because for as long as even one one fourth of an inch of sin still exists in any one person on this entire planet, and God allows it to uh, endure forever. He does not wipe it out and totally destroy every wicked person. Then it will be totally impossible for there to be everlasting peace. Because that wicked person will corrupt other people. Amen. The virus will spread, and sin will spread. And because God allowed one person with a little bit of sin still left in their life to enter into paradise, that there is another fall of mankind. Hey, we can keep running through this over and over and over and over. There's got to be an end to men's wickedness. There's got to be a deadline. There's got to be a stopping place when God says, no more, no exceptions. This is it. And that's not a God of hate. It's a God of reason. It's a God of justice. It's a God of fairness. It's a God of love. Because if he wants us to have eternal, everlasting peace and happiness, he has got to put his foot down and say, this is it. No more sin allowed. No sin allowed at all. No exception. Amen? That proves his love because he's not a wimp. If he was a wimpy God and continued to compromise with us and let us get away with sin forever and never, ever kill us, then we'd be totally lost forever. And we would have a very weak God indeed an unwise God. Amen. But thank God he is wise. Now look here, it says that he came, that he saved us, verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged or condemned. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of Theos. So people who simply don't believe in Jesus They've already condemned themselves. Jesus didn't come to condemn them. 
But those people have condemned themselves already just by not believing, just by not accepting that he's real, just by not accepting that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. They have condemned themselves already. Amen. So we condemn ourselves. It's not he that is condemning us, but we are condemning ourselves by our own choices, by our own unbelief and our own unobedience, our own disobedience. We condemn ourselves. Verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and mankind loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been worked in fields. What I want to say is this. A lot of people don't like strong teaching and they don't like for me to speak against other churches and other denominations because they don't want their own sin exposed. Amen. Because they don't want their own sins exposed. Amen. Because when the light is present, it will expose the darkness. When you have the truth being taught, unfiltered, uncompromised, that light will expose your darkness. Your sins will be revealed by having a ministry that doesn't pull any punches, but rather will actually always speak the truth, unfiltered, uncompromised. Amen. They don't like this type of preaching because they are afraid it will expose them for what they really are. That if it comes to it, their name will be called out next. They are the next person to be preached against. Amen. Because they're not willing to repent. They're not willing to repent. And they know that if they don't repent sooner or later, I will have to speak with them. Amen. Now, the proper way, of course, is to speak with a person individually, one-on-one, dealing with their sin. And the Bible says, if they don't hear you, then bring another person with you. And then even bring them, the pastor with you and so forth, and they, if they still don't repent, then bring them to the entire church. And so that's when you've got the preacher actually calling names or preaching against that person in the church is when they have already been talked to one-on-one by their brothers and sisters within the church who has already addressed the issue with that person and that person refused 
to confess their sins and refuse to repent. And they have even went and got another brother and sister involved to help convince them of their sin. And they still did not repent. Then it's time to make it more public and to let them see the seriousness of the situation. Amen. And when you're dealing with a internet ministry like we're dealing with, even more so, because dealing with an internet ministry, it's not like that Michael or Kiki or AJ or Lisa or Brittany can can go directly to a person. We're thousands of miles away. We might can email or telephone call, but a lot of the people that contact me, you don't know them, and I've not told you about them. You, we only know about those that are are committed enough to God that they that were taking part in the services and were taking part together in the chat room, and we're getting to know one another. You know, these are the the core members. But there's a lot of other people that you don't see. And those type of people, you can't go one-on-one with them in an email because you don't know that person. I've not said a word about them, and I can't say a word about them because of privacy issues. So an Internet ministry is a lot, lot different. And with Internet ministry, the only person that can meet with that person one-on-one through email or phone call is just me. So I can't go by two people or three people like we're typically supposed to do for an in-person conversation. So the only thing I can do with a person over the Internet that I've never met before and that you don't know nothing about is just one-on-one with them by myself. That's the only thing I can do. I have no other possibility. And I would try to... Um, talk with them and counsel with them uh, hopefully two, three, four, five times to try to get them to understand their sin. But I cannot promise that I'm going to be very, very long-suffering with every person. And especially when I've come to the point to where I can tell within the very first email whether or not they're going to repent. You know, I've not I've not just started my ministry just yesterday. If we was talking about the very first month that I started my ministry way back in 2006 and somebody is emailing with me, and it would take time, and I would go back and forth and be very long-suffering and very patient and very understanding for days, for weeks, for months, for years. I know there was one young man who was following this ministry for years. Year after year, 
And he would stay in touch with me. He would call me and we'd talk for hours and he would text message me and he would email me and and he would share the prophecies with people at work and with his family and so forth. And even though he was following the ministry, he was not obeying God. He was not keeping the seventh day. He was not keeping the holy days. It was all about the head knowledge. It was all about the prophecies and the head knowledge and, and, and words. But as far as actually obeying God and keeping the seventh day and keeping the holy days, it just wasn't there for him. But, but, I, but I, did, I did not cast him away, and I did not rebuke him year after year. Until finally, one year, I was like, okay, the only way this guy is going to keep the seventh day is only if I ask him or tell him to actually ask off from work, go, you know, I'm like, I'm like, brother, why don't you just go ahead and, and tell your boss that you cannot work on the seventh day? Why don't you make this commitment? Why don't you make this commitment now that you're going to keep the seventh day? Why don't you go in to work and tell them that you've got to have Saturdays off? And it blew my mind that he actually did do that. But if I had not said that, and if I had not, like, tuck it upon my own self and my own initiative to tell him to do it, he would not have done it even to this day. But it should have been his own choice. Amen. That's kind of like me saying, repeat the words after me, prayer. It wasn't his own heart of wanting to serve God. It was just because Pastor Tim is cutting his foot down that it's time to do this. Not long after that, I did this fellowship from him. Because I told him straight out, you're a hypocrite. Amen. And just like I have sent through the text message on the newsletter, many, many, many times over the years, I have gotten on my text message to send out a message to everybody on the list. You are a hypocrite. Every one of you, every one of you are hypocrites. I've done that over and over and I don't regret it because it's true except for just those that are listening to the services but other than that I forget how many people is on the on the list that receives these text messages and emails I forget the number I don't know, 120 maybe, that get the emails and text messages, around 120 maybe, maybe 200, I forget, whatever the number is. And yet, 
the only people that are truly serving Jesus is only one handful. That's it. Only one handful. The rest of all these 200 people, whatever the number is, they're all hypocrites. Every one of them. That's the truth. Amen. Am I tired and bitter? Yes. Because I'm sick and tired of the hypocrisy. Amen. <coughs> and I've come to the place, and some of you know I have, come to the place to where I can tell within the first one, two emails whether or not the person is going to repent. I don't have to wait till the 20th email to figure it out. It's pretty simple. It's pretty easy. You, you can tell from their words. You can tell from their response whether they're serious or whether they're just all playing games. You can tell. Amen. And I ain't got time for games no more. Amen. Time is short. Let's go to another verse. Isaiah 58. (coughs) Isaiah chapter 58. Page 388. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry aloud and stare not. Lift up your voice as with a trumpet, alarm clock, an instrument of warning of war, an instrument that wakes people up, an instrument that warns people and declares to my people their sins and to the house of Jacob their iniquity, their sins. But here God is telling Isaiah, who is a prophet, a preacher, a pastor, a very different type of pastor, amen. He was not your everyday pastor, amen. This guy was pretty extreme, pretty radical, amen. And God told him to lift up your voice like a trumpet. That means scream. That means hollow. That means shout. Shout. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their sins and to the house of Jacob their iniquity. God didn't tell Isaiah to beat around the bush or to speak in a very gentle manner. But he told Isaiah speak boldly and loud and to even tell the people what their sins are. Because sometimes if you don't tell them what their sins are, they don't even know what their sins are unless you tell them. 
And the, the day and the time has come for that generation just as it has now for this generation that you just got to go ahead and tell people their sins or else they ain't going to know. They ain't got enough enough common sense or enough wisdom to figure it out. They're not saved, so they don't have the Holy Ghost. So they don't have that ingredient that is needed. To It's like a car running without gas. If you don't have the Holy Ghost, then you don't have the equipment, the energy, the, the spirit that reveals what is sin and reveals the truth. <clears throat> so it's going to take somebody that does have the Holy Ghost, somebody that does have the gas and the fuel to speak the truth, to wake people up so they can get saved, so they can receive the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's go to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, Jeremiah 1, page 392, <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, page 392. The word of Theos, which came to Jeremiah, the son of Salcius of the priests, who dwelt in Amphitoph in the land of Benjamin. The land of Benjamin is one of the twelve tribes. Accordingly, as the word of Theos came to him in the days of Joshua, son of Amos, king of Judah, in the thirteenth uh, year of his reign, <coughs> and it was in the days of Joachim, son of Joshua, king of Judah, until the 11th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, even until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. And the word of Jesus came to him, to Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. And before you came from the womb, I sanctified you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. God is telling Jeremiah that even before he was born, that God knew who he was. And not only that, but even chose him as a prophet and appointed him, ordained him, that that is what he's going to do in life. He's going to be a prophet. Now, Jeremiah didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I want to be a prophet, or I want to be a preacher or a pastor or whatever. No, what it was is God made that decision, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Being a preacher is not the same as saying that I want to deliver the mail on a regular mail route, or I want to work at McDonald's, or I want to do this, or I want to be a doctor, or I want to be a lawyer. It's not a choice. It's not something a person chooses to do. Most of the time, people actually run away from it when they find out that that's what God wants them to do. If you look at Jonah, 
that they he ran away from it. And a lot of other people run away from it. Not always. But it's not something that someone can make a decision to do. It's a calling. It's, it's an appointment that God says, this is what you're going to do. Now, Jeremiah did try to run away. Notice what, what happened here. It says, verse 6, And I said, O Lord, you that are supreme Lord, behold, I don't know how to speak. For I am a child. So Jeremiah did run away from his calling. He's like, I'm only a kid. We believe Jeremiah was probably around 16 years old when this conversation happened. That's traditional thinking as he was probably about 16 years old. But he says, I'm too young. I don't even know how to speak. I'm not, I'm not a good speaker. Verse 7, and Jesus said to him, say not that I am a child. For you, you shall, you will. This is not your choice, Jeremiah. This is God telling you that you will go to all to whomsoever I shall send you and accordingly to all the words that I shall command you, you shall speak. So this is another thing about preachers is that we're not supposed to say things on our own accord but rather we're supposed to speak only what God gives us to speak. And that is something that you learn to do as you gain more and more of the Holy Ghost and how to listen to him and how to let him speak through you and how to refrain from your own words. That comes with time and experience. Verse 8, be not afraid before them, for I am with you to deliver you, says Jesus. And Jesus stretched forth his hand to me and touched my mouth. And Jesus said to me, Behold, I have put my words into your mouth. Behold, I have, I have appointed you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Why? To root out and to pour down and to destroy Underlying that word, destroy, and to root out and to pour down, and to rebuild and to plant. Jeremiah wasn't called just to be patient, or just to be tender, or just to be peaceful and, and kind and tender and patient and long suffering. No. He was called to destroy nations. Amen. People don't understand that a preacher is not called just to teach. No. That's only one part of the job. And a preacher is not called just to preach. That's only one part of the job. Only one part. There is a lot, a whole lot of different duties and responsibilities that come with 
being a pastor or a prophet or apostle or a deacon or evangelist or a preacher, a law. And it's just like working at McDonald's. Your job at McDonald's is not just to make a hamburger or just to make french fries. If you work at McDonald's, you have to clean the bathroom. You have to clean the toilet. You got to sweep. You got to mop. You got to take out the trash. Whatever you got to do, everything, everything. And so, being a preacher is not just preaching. A pastor has to be there at three o'clock in the morning when somebody just had to buy a bad nightmare, or if somebody is tempted. And you got to be there, or somebody just died, or there's just some kind of just emergency, or this or that, or a major a salvational issue that comes up at three o'clock in the morning, or whatever. You've got weddings, you've got funerals, you've got baptism, you've got the chat room, you've got the newsletter, you've got prepare a sermon. It's more than just preaching itself. I don't just get up here without any notes. That would be pretty ridiculous to get up here without any notes and not even know what direction I'm going, what I'm going to even preach about. Pretty ridiculous. But the Pentecostal church believes you're supposed to do that. The Pentecostal church believes you're supposed to get up at the pulpit without any idea what you're going to talk about. And they do that. And they wing it. From the time they stand up at the pulpit, from the beginning of the sermon to the end of the sermon, the preacher is winging the whole thing. And that's why they don't get any teaching. They don't get any education. They don't get any knowledge. And they don't get any truth. Because the guy just got up there. He's not been praying all week about what to teach. He's not been listening to God about what to teach. He's not been looking at the Bible about what to teach. He's not been thinking about it at all. And even if he has been thinking about it, he's not been listening. If he has been asking what he's supposed to teach, he's not been writing it down what God told him to do. And if God really told him the message, but God then should have gave him another scripture and another scripture and another scripture and another scripture. But they are totally ignorant about how to even preach. Amen. Totally based upon total false doctrine. And many, many times, they don't even open up the Bible during the entire service. And if they do open up the Bible, it's because the preacher is able to remember one verse, maybe two verses that he might come to his mind while he's making up whatever he's making up about what to teach that day. Amen. But there's nothing wrong with seeking God in the days before the sermon about what God wants you to teach and writing it down, finding those scriptures, compiling those scriptures, 
in the day before and in the hours before the sermon actually gets there so that when you get up there, you know what you're talking about so that you don't be like, uh, 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 you know. And I've seen many times that it'd be like, uh, the main pastor would be like, is anybody here got a sermon? Did God give you a sermon? And everybody would be like, nope, he didn't give me one. Nope. Well, apparently the pastor would be like, well, he didn't give me one either. Didn't he give you one? Nope. Didn't he give you one? Nope. And everybody's like, no. And then the pastor was like, but Tom, won't you get up and preach? Tom's like, but he didn't give me nothing. Henry, well, come on now. You get up and preach. I've seen this. I've actually seen this. And the pastor is like, come on, Henry, no, you, you get up and preach. Henry's like, no, Tom, you get up and preach. Tom's like, no, hey, Steve, you get up and preach. And then finally, the pastor like, okay, it's you. You get up. You, you do it. Hey, and, he, and the man's like, oh, no, I've heard this. And then, okay. Uh, and then the whole sermon is, you... Jesus came to die for your sins, and if you don't get saved, you're going to hell. Because that's the only thing they know to preach. Right? Because nobody had a sermon ready. Ridiculous. Amen. Absolutely ridiculous. But anyway, I said all that because Jeremiah was called to do more than only preach. He was called to actually destroy nations. And that is because a preacher is more than a man that's just talking. His words are supposed to be the words of God, not just his own ideal or what he decided to talk about, but it's supposed to be God touching his mouth, putting his words in that man's mouth. And it's the words of God that's supposed to be coming out of that man's mouth. And the words of God spoke all things into existence and will destroy Assad and the false prophets and will bring this earth on fire. Amen. The words of God establish nations and pour down nations. So when you're preaching, you may actually be bringing down a king, a president. And in fact, what we are doing when we are preaching is bringing down the kingdom of Satan. Amen? We are bringing down the kingdom of Satan known as the Baptist Church, known as the Catholic Church, known as the Pentecostal Church, known as the Y-name Hebrew lunatics. Amen. So the words of God are exposing the darkness, rebuking the darkness, destroying the lies, destroying the sinful nature of man, Destroying vulgar language, destroying pornography, destroying idolatry, destroying Christmas and Easter and Sunday worship. Hey, the words of God 
destroy sin, destroy lies, destroy fairy tales, and destroy the false church. The words of God are words of destruction. Amen. There's a verse in the Bible, I believe it's the words of Jesus, or maybe Paul or someone, said that he came to destroy the works of the devil. Amen. So here in verse 11, and the word of Jesus came to me saying, what see you? And I said, a rod of a almond tree. And Jesus said to me, you have seen well, for I have watched over my words to perform them. And the words of Jesus came to me a second time, saying, What see you? And I said, A quadrant on the fire, meaning a, a cooking pot on the fire. And the face of it is toward the north. And Jesus said to me, From the north shall flame uh, forth evils upon all the inhabitants of the land. And behold, I call together all the kingdoms of the earth from the north, save Jesus, and they should come and just set each one his uh, throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all the walls around about her and against all the cities of Judah. And I would speak to them in judgment concerning all their iniquity, for as much as they have forsaken me and sacrificed to strange gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. And do you grit up your loins, meaning this you do, you should grit up your loins, and stand up and speak all the words that I shall command you. Do not be afraid of their face, neither be you alarmed before them, for I am with you to deliver you, saith Jesus. So don't be afraid of bold speech, bold words, bold preaching. Don't be afraid of these people's reactions. Don't be afraid of their faces, their words, and their reactions. Even if they rise up against you, don't be afraid of the people and what they're going to uh, think or say. Verse 18, Behold, I have made you this day as a strong city, talking about Jeremiah himself. Talking about him, I have made you like a strong city and a brazen wall, strong against all the kings of Judah and the princes thereof and the people of the land. And they shall fight against you. Amen. If you're going to preach the truth, people are going to fight. The people are going to fight against you when you proclaim the truth. <clears throat> if you're preaching or if you're teaching or if you're witnessing, I know these things are different things. Some people teach some people preach, some people witness. Not everybody's called to be a preacher. Not everybody's called to be a pastor. But everybody is called to witness. And if you're witnessing to a person, and if you're witnessing the truth to the people, then they're going to fight you. Amen. And if nobody's fighting you and everybody, no, nobody's going to fight you, then you've got to wonder why, because... If you're speaking the truth, people are going to fight you. 
Your family is going to fight you. Your friends, so-called friends, are going to fight you if you're speaking the truth. It's going to happen. You can expect it. You can write it down. It's going to happen. It's part of it. That says, but they shall by no means prevail against, for I am with you to deliver you, says Jesus. Amen. Go to chapter 33, page 410. Jeremiah 33, which says that it's chapter 26 in the King James Version, that in the Alpha and Omega is chapter 33. Page 410. Verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of King Joachim, son of Josias, there came this word from Jesus. Thus said Jesus, stand in the court of Jesus' house, and you should declare to all the Jews and to all, regardless of what race they are, that come to worship in the house of Jesus. All the words which I commanded you to speak not just whatever comes on your mind, but words I command you to speak and abate not one word. God tells Jeremiah, go to the house of God. Go to the temple and stand there right in the middle of church (laughs) and tell the people that they're going to die. That I am bringing an invasion from Babylon, from King Nebuchadnezzar, that he's going to invade Judah, that he is going to invade Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city, and Jerusalem was holy, and Jerusalem is the the town, the location of the temple. The people of the time thought, They were too holy. The temple was too holy. And the city was too holy to be destroyed by God. Because they were the people of God. They were the house of God. They were the temple of God. That was God's place. They were too holy to be judged, condemned, and punished by God. Because, after all, they were perfect. They, they knew the Sabbath and the seventh day. God wasn't going to destroy them. They were keeping the Sabbath. They were keeping the holy days and everything. But their heart wasn't right with God. And they had influences of false religion that was not being addressed. And the, the priests, of the temple was not dealing with sin in the hearts of the people. And the priests were not dealing with uh, worship of Saturn. People were worshiping Saturn and and adding on false holidays that they had learned from the surrounding nations. And the priest was not putting his foot down. The priest should have been screaming at the people 
because there was so much junk, evil, evil, evil stuff that the people were doing. They had embraced in the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 10. They had embraced the Christmas tree. They had embraced Easter and Christmas. And they had embraced what we now know as the so-called Star of David, a pagan symbol. They had embraced it already at this time. The priests of the temple and the preachers of the people, the leaders of the people and the elders of the people and the old men should have been screaming and shaking people up and blowing the alarm and sparing not and blowing the trumpet telling the people of their sins. But they wasn't. They were complacent and letting the people get away with murder. The God sends Jeremiah. Everything's about to change. And this one man is about to stand up in church and say, You're all hypocrites, you know, and you're going to die. Amen. So it says here in verse 3, free of venture that they will hear and turn everyone from his evil way. Then I will cease from the evils. That actually should be translated as calamity. Then I will cease from the calamity which I purpose to do to them because of their evil practice. So this means God is like, I want you to go and say this so that maybe, 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 maybe they might repent. But really God knew they wasn't going to repent. He saw the end from the beginning. But he still said, do this so that they could repent. Give them the opportunity that if they would repent. But they didn't. Verse 4, and you shall say, thus saith Jesus, if you will not hearken to me to walk in my statutes, which I set before you, meaning law, my laws, my decrees, which I set before you, then will I make this house as Shiloh. Meaning, see, before, at a previous time in history, God had a temple at Shiloh as well, another town. And God had declared Shiloh a holy place with a house of God. And but he took away the house of God from Shiloh. And he brought judgment to that town. So now he's saying that I will make you like the house of Shiloh, a place that has already been removed, a place that had already been judged and that he had already took his house away from them. And it says, I will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. And the priests and the false prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of Jesus. And it came to pass when Jeremiah had ceased speaking all that Jesus had ordered him to speak to all the people that the priests and the false prophets and all the people took him, saying to Jeremiah, 
you shall surely die. Because you have prophesied in the name of Jesus, saying that this house should be as Shiloh, and this city shall be made quite destitute of inhabitants. And all the people assembled against the Jeremiah's in the house of Jesus. And the princes of Judah heard this word. And they went up out of the house of the king to the house of Jesus, and sat in the entrance of the new gate. Then the priests and the false prophets said to the princes and to all the people, The judgment of death is due to this man Jeremiah, because he has prophesied against this city, and you have heard with your ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to the princes and to all the people, saying, Jesus sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words which you have heard. And now amend your ways and your works and hearken to the voice of Jesus, and Jesus shall cease from the calamity, it should say, which he has pronounced against you. Verse 14, And behold, I am in your hands, do to me as is expedient, and as it is best for you. But know for a certainty, or for sure, that if you slay me, you bring innocent blood upon yourself, and upon this city, and upon them that dwell in it. For in truth, Jesus has sent me to you to speak in your ears all these words. Then the princes and all the people said to the priest and to the false prophet, Judgment of death is not due this man, for he has spoken to us in the name of Jesus our fear. And there arose up men of the elders of the land and said to all the assembly of the people, Michael, or Micah, the Morarite, lived in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus saith Jesus, Zion should be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem should become a desolation, and the mountain of the house should be as a thicket of trees. Did Hezekiah and all the Judah in any way slay him? Was it not that they feared Jesus? And they made supplication before Jesus, and Jesus ceased from the calamity which he had pronounced against them. Question mark. How, whereas we have worked great evil against our own souls. And there was another man prophesying in the name of Jesus, Urias, the son of Samaras of Caturian, he prophesied concerning this same land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And King Joachim and all the princes heard all these words and sought to slay him. And Uriah heard it and went into Egypt. And the king sent him into Egypt, or sent men into Egypt. And they brought him there and brought him into the king and he smote him with the sword. The king smote this true prophet with a sword, and cast him into the tomb, second of the children of his people. Nevertheless, the hand of Erkan, son of Zephron, was with Jeremiah to prevent his being delivered into the hands of the people or being killed. 
So God protected Jeremiah and did not protect this other true prophet of God. God does not guarantee that every true prophet will survive. We know that all the disciples were murdered. All of them were martyred. And many, many prophets of the Old Testament were also murdered. Amen. But Jeremiah's was protected by God. But that did not stop or prevent Jeremiah from being arrested over and over again, thrown into a pit, and kept in a dirty, nasty pit for days, perhaps weeks or months. Jeremiah suffered greatly, a whole lot. Even though he wasn't martyred, he really suffered at the hands of the people. And even though it looked like in this chapter the people were repenting, it was only temporary, and it was only a group of people on that day. But overall, the people did not repent. And the people actually mocked Jeremiah. If you look at other chapters, if you read the whole book of Jeremiah, more often than not, people said that Jeremiah was a false prophet. And there were false prophets that were saying that the land would not be invaded and that they would have peace and that God would not destroy the temple. And the people listened to the ones that made them feel good. The people overall in general listened to the prophets of peace, the prophets that said, you're not in sin, you don't have to worry, you're not going to lose your salvation. God is not going to judge you. God is not going to judge the house of God. God is not going to judge the high priest. God is not going to judge the inhabitants of the land. We're okay. You don't have to worry. God is not going to bring judgment. You're not in sin. That's what the false prophets said. Amen. What happened? God brought the destruction. Amen. God brought King Nebuchadnezzar, and God took away the government and the kingdom of Israel from the king of Israel and from the king of Judah. The government and the land and the people were taken away into captivity. The northern kingdom was taken by the land of Assyria, by the king of Assyria, and the southern people were taken away by King Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. Then Daniel was among the people. And Daniel was taken away as a slave, as a prisoner of war. Then we learn about Daniel's ministry from there. But uh, Isaiah also prophesied about the invasion. And many other prophets of the Bible prophesied about the invasion. But before the invasion came, God sent Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel as men that were to scream and holler and blow the trumpet and to tell the people their sins, to give them at least the opportunity to repent, the chance to repent. 
but also to make the, the word of God known. Amen. Now, if that was true for that day and that time, for that and all those invasions, how much more true is going to be for our time of the invasion in our lifetime? We serve the same God today. He has not changed. The Bible says that he is the same yesterday, tomorrow, and forever. The Bible says that he does not change. Now, he might change his mind. We do see times he changed his mind. But he himself has not changed. He's the same God. He has the same character. Okay? He has the same personality. He is who he is. He has not changed. And because we serve the same God of Jeremiah, and he has not changed who he is, he's going to do the same today. But he is going to raise up people to speak for his words, words that will destroy kingdoms. Words that will pull down kingdoms. Words that will chastise the ministers. Chastise the preachers. Chastise, condemn, and speak against and rebuke the false churches and false religion and false doctrines and sinfulness. Amen? God wants us to repent. He's not against us. He's not trying to kill us. And he doesn't want to send an invasion. But he has talked to us till he is blue in the face. He has been kind. He has been loving. He has been gentle. He has tried to speak to us with the quiet and still waters of Shiloh. He has tried to whisper in our minds and in our hearts, I love you, you're doing wrong, you're sinning, please return to me. He has whispered, he has pleaded with us, he has begged us. He sent me at first as a gentle voice. He sent Paul at first as a gentle and timid voice, Paul said. Paul said that when he first started preaching, he was timid and tame and gentle. But he said that he warned the people (laughs) that he could lose his temper and he would come with with wrath to that congregation if he had to. He warned the people that he would come to set things straight in the church if he had to. And God has sent the gentle voices long enough The people didn't listen to the gentle voice. God got louder, and the people still did not listen. God and his preachers and his ministers and his prophets and his pastors got louder, and the people still did not listen. The hurricanes got worse, and the people said, we will rebuild. The floods ravaged the same place. The fires ravaged the same place. The chemical spills and the tornadoes. One plague after another, after another, after another in the same location. And the people said, we will not repent. 
we will rebuild. Vintage is the Lord's. There is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. And we deserve everything that we get. Amen? God is not going to hold back judgment forever and forever. Amen. I got a text message yesterday uh, from where I subscribe uh, concerning news, that there's breaking news. And this one breaking news report had this title. Israel's ongoing bombing of Syria threatens dangerous escalation. I will repeat that. Israel's ongoing bombing of Syria threatens dangerous escalation. Now, Democrats, a lot of people think that Israel is doing wrong. And not only the Democrats, but Russia and China, which are the allies of the Democrats, the same leftist thinking, and the Muslims have the same thinking, that Israel is doing wrong. To them, to Russia and China, to the Palestinians, to the Arabs, to the Muslims, and to the Democrats, Israel is always wrong, no matter what they do. And Trump is always wrong no matter what he does. Because all those people are on the side of the devil. And anything that's right is wrong, and anything that's wrong is right. They got the entire world upside down. Israel's ongoing bombing of Syria threatens dangerous escalation. They claim, and the article claims, that Israel is in the wrong, that Israel hates the people of Syria, and that Israel is just all about killing people and destroying people and murdering people and just wanting to bomb. But the truth is, Israel is bombing Syria on a constant basis because of what's going on in Syria is deliveries of chemical weapons and deliveries of all kinds of weapons to uh, Iran and to Lebanon and to uh, uh, Hezbollah and Hamas and all these terror groups that admit that they want to destroy the Jews. I mean, they admit it. The very constitution of uh, Hezbollah or Hamas or Boko, whichever one it is, the very constitution of that group says that their goal is to destroy the Jews and to kill all Jews and destroy Israel. I mean, they don't hide it. And Iran says this publicly constantly, every day of the week. And so does Hezbollah and Hamas. They all openly admit that their goal and what they want to do is to destroy the Jews. It's just hate. It's hate. And it's the same spirit of of Hitler and Nazism still alive upon the planet. One thing Israel is doing is trying to protect peace. Israel is doing an act of love, trying to protect their own civilization, their own survival. 
protect people, protect the status quo of that there is a land of Israel, that there is peace in the Middle East, that they don't go in almost every day of the week and take out these bomb deliveries. Sooner or later, all those bombs are going to be dropped on Israel. Israel is doing its job of maintaining peace through the use of weapons. Just as a preacher must use bonus of speech, so must a military and a nation use bonus of tactics and be bold and brave about whatever they need to do to protect their nation, to protect their right to live and their right to survive. Israel is totally surrounded by evil people, people that truly hate people based on their uh, color of their skin and what tribe they belong to. Israel is totally surrounded by nothing but prejudiced people, people that hate the Jews based on nothing but their bloodline. Israel are the victims of hate. But yet the Democrats want you to believe the Islamic propaganda that Israel are the criminals and that Israel is the one that hates. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. The whole world is upside down. Israel's ongoing bombing in Syria threatens dangerous escalation. But the truth is, it is the continual sin, continual wickedness of the world that endangers Israel and endangers you. We are spiritual Israel. Spiritual uh, Hamas is the Baptist church. Spiritual Hamas, spiritual Iran, spiritual Islam is the Baptist church and the Pentecostal church and the Catholic church. All of that is Islam. All these churches that do Christmas and Easter they are doing Islamic holiday. And the Catholic Church is Islam. The Catholic Church is Islam. And the Baptist Church is Islam. And the Pentecostal Church is Islam. And all of these false churches, they are spiritual Iran. And they are your enemies. Not your friends. Not your brothers and sisters in Christ. They are your physical and spiritual enemy. Somebody has to say, open your eyes. They can claim to know Jesus all day long. But the fact is, they're trying to tell you, you must keep Islamic holidays of Christmas and Easter to get saved. They're your enemy. Somebody has to say that. Somebody has to say it the way it is. Amen. They are creatures of darkness. They are liars. They are deceivers. Amen. Now, of course, there are some of them 
that are actually truly saved. But they're only truly saved only because they have a really, 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 really small seed of the Holy Ghost based upon believing in Jesus, loving Jesus, seeking Jesus, praying, fasting, worshiping him, praising him, praying, reading the Bible. And because of all that, God has said, I'm going to give them a measure of my spirit. And they are actually truly saved, even though they're not keeping the commandments. But if they do not repent, if they do not repent, they will lose that seed of salvation and God will take it back away from them. And they will suffer in the judgment of Babylon. How can I say everything I just said? The Bible says that if they don't keep the commandments, they don't love him. They're not saved. I can say it because there's another verse in Revelation 18. It says, come out of her, my people. They are his people. Come out of her, out of Babylon, out of the false church, out of the lies, out of the deception. Come out of her, my people. So there has to be his people in that false church. There has to be. And I know that's true because I used to go to those false churches. I was one of those people. I was his people. But I was going to Sunday churches. And I was sitting there side by side with the people that go to church on Sunday and Christmas, but I wasn't going on Sunday and Christmas. And I wasn't going on Sunday morning. I only went on Sunday night. And Wednesday night, Thursday night, Tuesday night, whatever night that they would have services that I would never, ever go Sunday morning because I knew enough to not do that. I, I I, I drew the line on Sunday morning service because Sunday morning service is the same as doing Easter morning service. Same thing. There's no difference at all. And I drew the line on that. No Sunday morning. But I go Sunday night, I go middle of the week. And I did that for a long time because where else could I go? There was you know, there was no pastor Tim for me. You know. But you still have to come out of that sooner or later, amen. So people out there today They may be looking and knowing where they're at is not where they're supposed to be, but they don't know where to go. And they're they're truly saved. And we need to be looking for those people. We need to be looking for the people that are going to Sunday church, but they know they need to be going to church on the seventh day. There's people like that out there, and I've met them before. Because, I mean, there's Sunday churches everywhere, and there's no Saturday churches other than Seventh-day Adventists and the Hebrew roots. So it's like, where do you go? So we put the name of the ministry out there. We put the website out there. We put the flyers out there, and we put the flyers on the side of the Coke machine and 
so forth, and looking for that one person to give them a way of escape. Let them know that we are here, that there is a place to go to church on the seventh day. That is not a wide-name lunatic church. That is not a seven-day Adventist lunatic church. That is not a Baptist lunatic church or any of these other things. Perhaps just let them know that we are here, that we are here, that we do exist. And if it's not locally, that they can listen online, that they can listen over telephone and so forth. So we, we do ask that people be distributing the flyers and telling people and letting people know that we're here so they might grab on to the Word of God and come completely out of Babylon. Now, that's the sermon for this week, but I want to go back to what I was talking about last week uh, because I was uh, sick and I wanted to get uh, off the Internet. I closed down the sermon too early last week. So let's take up from last week now, go to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, and I'm going to point out something that I meant to point out last week, but didn't get to since I wasn't feeling well. Galatians chapter 4, page 190. Now, you remember that in Galatians, we underlined the word circumcision eight times in the book of Galatians. The word Sabbath and holy days and feast days uh, doesn't exist anywhere in the book of Galatians. It's all about circumcision. So we had underlined the word circumcision eight times throughout the book of Galatians. So in Galatians 4, verse 1, and remember also this is uh, Paul uh, writing a letter to a Gentile congregation, okay? So Galatians 4, verse 1, page 190. Now I say as long as the hire is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by their father. So we also, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elementary things of the world. Now, when Paul is there, think about what he's saying in verse 3. That while we were children, meaning uh, while we were in bondage, while we were at sin, while we were lost, uh, or while we were still immature, that we were in bondage under what? Under elementary things of the world. Let's talk about uh, things that, if it's elementary, then it's not the huge things. It's not the major things. But it's not just that. That's not really the full fullness of what that word really means. It's really talking about carnal things. Uh, element is more like not elementary, but rather the elements of the world, the elements, the, the, the water, the dirt, the fire, the elements of the earth. 
but they were in their bondage to fleshly things, carnal things. Verse 4, Now when the fullness of the time came, Theo sent forth his son, born of a woman, born covered by the law. Right? So that's Jesus was born of Mary, and he was born covered by the law. So he was born under old covenant uh, requirements. So he had to be circumcised on the eighth day. The Bible says that Jesus did get circumcised on the eighth day as a boy his parents circumcised him on his eighth day when he was eight days old because he was born under the law of the old covenant. Verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were covered by the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, uh, Theos has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts by Abba Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then a hire through Theos. However, at that time, when you did not know Theos, you were slaves to those which by nature are not gods. That's very important. I'd like for you to underline the word not gods or no gods. Now, if he's talking to Gentiles and he's reminding them of their past condition of sin before they got saved, that you were slaves, you were in the past, when you were lost, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. What is he talking about? Think about that. If he's saying that you are in bondage, you are slaves to something that is not God, why would he say that unless people were thinking that they were God? like statues. Uh, You're slaves to those which by nature are no gods. So he is addressing the issue of idolatry, of statues, and I'll tell you what else, too, when we go forward. Uh, Remember that the Gentiles think Romans, think Greek, think Roman Empire, Greek mythology where they had thousands of gods that were statues as well as the sun, the moon, the stars, the constellations, the horoscopes, all these things. So but he's saying they're not real gods. These are not gods. So the context is going from that Jesus was born under the law of a requirement to be circumcised. That's the context of all of Galatians, is circumcised, not circumcised. Jesus was born under the requirement to be circumcised. That's an element of the earth. That is flesh and blood. Now, you Gentiles, when you were lost, now, you Gentiles, you didn't have to be, I mean, you wasn't taught circumcision, you know, until you try to convert to Judaism, and then the the Jews would try to teach you about circumcision. But the problem, until they actually were confronted by Jewish uh, priests, people trying to convert them to Judaism, the problem was 
Greek mythology, and the problem was false gods and statues and Christmas and Easter that the Gentiles would do. I right, verse 9, but now that you have come to know Theos, or rather be known by Theos, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary things, not elementary, but element, talking about the things of the flesh, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Now, people who don't believe in the seventh day and the holy days, they will point to verse 10. And they would say, this means that the seventh day and the holy days are done away, that we are not under that law anymore. But it doesn't say seventh day. And it doesn't say holy days. And it doesn't say feast days. And it doesn't say Passover or unleavened bread or tabernacles or Pentecost or Day of Atonement or Feast of Trumpets. And in fact, you don't find any of those words in this entire book of Galatians. So to say that verse 10 is talking about the seventh day or the holy days or the feast days or Passover or tabernacles is to make a giant jump of conclusion. You know, you've got to really jump to conclusion. Total assumption to think that's what it's talking about you would have to have another verse to back it up. There's no, other, there's no verse to back it up, and that's what he's talking about. And besides which, it's very clear that it's saying that these people, the Gentiles were going back to doing this, but the Gentiles didn't keep the Holy Day when they were lost, right? The Gentiles wouldn't be keeping the seventh day and the Holy Days when they was lost, before they got saved, that he's warning them, don't go back to doing this. But they never did that. They never kept the seventh day in the holy days until they learned the truth that you've got to keep the seventh day. These are Gentiles. So it's impossible to be talking about the holy days. Amen? It's impossible that it's talking about the holy days. So what kind of days was it then? horoscope, and worship of Saturn, worship of Jupiter, worship of Mars, because these was the practice of the Gentiles. The Gentiles did observe the movement of the stars and the solar system, the galaxies, and the sun and the moon and the stars. And this is what it's talking about that you observe days and weeks and seasons and years is the, the over-focus of the planets and even the idolatry and worship of the planets. And what it's really talking about is horoscopes, major problem that still exists today. People thinking that they can read their horoscopes in the newspaper or on Facebook and think that that's okay. When that's the worst thing you could do. We're not supposed to try to be guided by the stars. We're supposed to be guided by God himself. Amen. Those stars can't tell you nothing. Those stars cannot see you. Those stars 
don't know you exist. How are those stars going to lead you about what to do and not do in life when those stars don't even know you exist? How are they going to lead you about do's and don'ts? Amen. But this is what the Gentiles have always done and what they were returning to and what Paul was warning them about, to not return to those fleshly, carnal, element things. When it says element things, it really, what would be a better word to be, to translate that as, um, it's a hard word to translate. Because it's not just saying just fleshly or just carnal, like planetary things, maybe. Uh, so it's a hard word to translate. But I think it needs to be looked at and try to figure out a better way of translating. It may be one of those things where we need to put something in uh, our principle. Help me out, Brittany. Our princess teeth. To put it in for principles, what it means, because you, it's one of those words you can't really translate with just one word and make it known what it means. So I wanted to really point this out to you because people will jump to conclusion that it's talking about the holy days and there's nothing about it that hints to it being holy days. It's the opposite of holy days. It is horoscopes and even uh, pagan holidays based upon the horoscope. That's what Christmas is. Christmas is based upon winter, winter solstice. Say it, Brittany. Solstice. Winter solstice. That's what Christmas is based upon. The sun, the stars, the months, the seasons, the years. Christmas. Pagan holidays is what it's speaking again, which is directly connected to horoscopes. Christmas and Easter is directly connected with witchcraft, with Satanism, with worship of the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the horoscopes. It's all connected. Paul never, ever, ever preached against God's holy days. He preached against circumcision a whole lot and against sacrifices of animals. He never, ever, ever preached against God's holy days. Instead, he said, let us keep the feasts. Amen. Then once you get down to verse 21, he starts talking about circumcision again. And from verse 21 through the rest of the book of Galatians, he uh, is focusing on circumcision. So it, it, he took a little break here in verse 8 to 11 uh, when he started talking about uh, the planetary things. Okay. So that's uh, everything uh, that I have prepared for you today. Uh, I praise Jesus for giving me strength 
to share on this today. And uh, I did cut on email and newsletter that the strong delusion will not happen next week. It can't happen. Because like I have always said over and over, before we can have the strong delusion, you've got to have something to provoke Trump to attack Assad, and you've got to see military movement. Let's look at Daniel. Daniel 11. This ain't just my reasoning. I'm not going by my reasoning. I'm going by what the Bible says must happen. Daniel 11. Page 460. Page 460, Daniel 11, verse 40. Daniel 11, verse 40. And at the time of the end, he, Assad, shall... Clyde, this is uh, 460 of black and white <clears throat> Old Testament page number, but 1140 at the time of the end, he saw it so conclide with the king of the south, either Israel or Egypt, and the king of the north, NATO, America, perhaps Turkey, should come against him with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. So you see in 1140 there, that we have to see military movement. We have to see the king of the north, which is the United States, and the king of the south, which might be Israel or Egypt, or maybe even Saudi Arabia. But we have to see the king of the south and the king of the north both moving his military toward Syria, his chariots, his horsemen, and many ships. We've got to see a military movement that lets us know they're preparing a major war in Syria to take Assad down. And only then can we have the strong delusion in the 30 days. It says here in verse, uh, the rest of verse 40, it says, I have to read the footnote to get you through this, this Middle Eastern war is the deadly hidden of Revelation 13 and Isaiah 7. And they shall enter into the land, and he shall break in pieces and pass through, and he shall enter into the land of beauty, Israel, and many shall fall. But they shall escape out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon, Jordan. And he shall stretch forth his hand over the land, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So you have war breaking out throughout the Middle East. He even invades Egypt, etc. He invades the land of beauty, Israel. So, but before you can have the invasion of Israel, you have to first have 30 days of fleeing. And before you can have 30 days of fleeing, you have to have the abomination of desolation. Right? So, even though it doesn't say the word abomination of desolation here, you know that it's occurring in here. You know it's occurring in here because you can't have the invasion until that happens. So that means you're gonna you have to see the military movement. 
before the abomination of desolation can occur. Now, that can still occur over the next month. We still got plenty of time for this uh, military movement to begin. All they have to get is an order from Trump, and the military movement can begin today. And maybe it won't even be by provocation. But one way or another, we have to see military movement. That's clear in these verses. Amen. And we got plenty of time for that to happen by uh, February 18th. Now, we might come to a week or two before February 18th and, again, make the same conclusion that we are today. We ain't got time. And then we'll know it's not going to happen February 18th either as far as the abomination of desolation. But something's got to happen because the third trimester will end on February 18th. That third trimester will be done and there will be a birth on February 18th. Somebody, something, some event, some document, some law, some Congress, some terror attack, something has got to come forth be born on that day. It don't matter what it is. I'm not God. So it don't matter what it is. I can't say it has to be the strong delusion. I'm not God. I can't tell you that it has to be what it has to be. All I know is something is going to give birth on that thing that day. And God is in control. I'm not in control. And God is the one that gave the date. And God is the one that gave the trimesters and powerfully, powerfully confirmed the first day of the third trimester with the explosion of the Georgia Dome. So I, there's no way that I can second guess that. There's no way that I can be, am I wrong about this? No. No way. I cannot doubt what God has told me. Am I going to call God a liar? If I believe God, do I believe in God or do I not believe in God? He gave me the third trimester. He confirmed it in your own eyes. How can you doubt it either? You saw the Georgia Dome with your own eyes explode on that day. So how can any of us doubt that the third trimester began that day? And then it's just simple math from there. Uh, to come out to February 18th, you might be off for a few days or even a week, according to how you count trimesters. But February 18th is the anniversary of uh, the temple uh, being destroyed or whatever happened that day. You got it in your notes. I got it in my notes and words. Whatever that historical event was, the invasion of Israel or whatever it was, is a historical date. And, and things happen as a repeat of history. I'm not saying Israel will be invaded. It can't be invaded that day. It ain't going to be that either. Because you have to have 
strong delusion first, then you have to have 30 days of fleeing, then the invasion. So it's not going to be the invasion on that day. It ain't going to be that either. But it's something. It could be the strong delusion on February 18th. We have to wait to see if we have the military movement or not. But whatever it is, it is whatever it's meant to be. Amen. Whatever it's meant to be, that's what it's going to be. Prophecy is not like going to drive through <laughs> and saying, uh, please give me a hamburger with extra mustard and no pickle. You can't order it the way you want it to happen. It's going to happen the way it's handed to you. And God's going to hand it to us the way he's going to fix it, the way he's going to make it, and we have no decision about it. Amen. We can't order prophecy up like a hamburger. So it'll be the way that it comes out. However it comes out, that's the way it'll be. And we'll just be surprised. Amen. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it. And if God gives us some clues, that'd be wonderful. And if he don't give us no clues, then we'll be that much more surprised. Amen. And let's be extremely thankful for every day and every week and every month that passes by without the strong delusion yet. Because I am sure as much as we want to get this thing done and over with, as much as we want to get this evil, nasty, ridiculous world over with and get into paradise and get into the kingdom of God, as much as we want that, we also must admit that we're really not ready, and we would be very thankful for another month, another two months, another six months, another year, however much time he gives us, that we'll be thankful for it, and we'll take it. Amen. We'll take it. We'll take a little bit more time to get our hearts right, to get our minds right, to get our doctrine right, to continue to work on the Alpha and Omega Bible, to continue to put out flyers out there for the people, and to find that one more person who is willing to accept the truth. Find one more brother, one more true brother, one more true sister. We'll take it. We'll take it. Amen. But when time is up, we'll be thankful for that too. And we'll be ready to move on. We'll be ready. We'll be ready to move on to the next part of God's plan, the next part of history. Amen. We'll be ready. Let's stay ready, continue to get ready, and don't miss the opportunity that God has given us this day this week, this month, to get a few more things ready. Maybe a few more grocery bags, a few more trash bags, dehydrate some more food, or study about the plants, study about how to live off the land, whatever it may be, taking advantage of the time, not taking it for granted taking advantage of the time that he has given us. Don't take this extra time for granted. 
We're not going to have a strong delusion next week. It ain't going to happen. So take advantage of this next week. We don't know how many more weeks we're going to have. Take advantage of this next week and this next month to study more, not just about survival, but just reading the Bible and praying and spending more time developing a personal, intimate love with God, spending more time worshiping him, more time on our face, worshiping our God. Amen. Don't take it for granted. Amen. So thank you for uh, listening today. Thank you for your patience. Brittany and I continue to suffer from the flu, but you can you can tell my voice is much stronger this week. Praise God for that. Uh, but I'm still weak, and um, but I thank, I'm very thankful that I'm able to stand the whole sermon and uh, have a better voice and even scream. Thank God. <laughs> I'm able to scream. I'm back. I'm back, baby. I'm back. Watch out. Watch out, devil. I am fighting mad. I am ready. I am ready for war. Amen. Praise Jesus. Love you all. Love every one of you. And have a good seventh day. All this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.